We are talking once again with Jav Parrish and Maria Tomchik, local writers and activists, here to give us a wrap-up of this past week's news. Good morning. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good to have you both here. <laughs> yeah, Maria, yes. where you been? Uh, it's called tax season. That doesn't sound like a very uh, appealing holiday destination. <laughs> oh, no. You're under the impression that I was on vacation. <laughs> well, you were from here. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> and it was a it was a particularly fun year because we had the Washington capital gains tax to to deal with. And the state of Washington didn't really prepare uh, for it. I think the Washington Department of Revenue, whoever was in charge over there, decided, oh, I, you know, the state Supreme Court is going to overturn this. So we won't make much effort to to set up a system that makes sense for tax preparers to use. And so and they were making changes to it right up to the system, to the platform that they were using right up to almost to the deadline. So it, it was a daily challenge to try to figure out how to get clients to file and and uh, extend their returns and make their payments in a way that made sense and was uh, as pain-free as we could make it for our clients while being extremely painful for us. <laughs> so that was a lot of fun. It sounds like it. And, you know, and, and I say that as somebody who supports the tax, you know, it's not that I'm against the tax. I think people who are wealthy should pay more tax. But uh, I just feel like the Washington State Department of Revenue, they prepared for one uh, eventuality that the state Supreme Court would overturn the tax. They didn't prepare for the eventuality when the state Supreme Court said, yeah, it is legal. And, and that's just bad. That's just bad planning. Yeah, this is a little insight, by the way, into the conversations that we have pretty much every week before we go on the air, mm-hmm. which is primarily Maria complaining about her workplace. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. All right. Jumping okay. into this this week's news. Uh, yeah. First off, um, Harry Belafonte passed away this week. Yeah. Uh, 96 years old. So he lived a, a long and very full life. Um, he was sort of uh, blandly described in those headlines as a a singer and activist, which uh, really short sells him on both counts. He was one of the first um, major um, cultural forces who was African-American. Actually, he was, was Caribbean, uh, was his heritage. And, uh, you know, in to, the 19... 19- to cross over into mainstream culture, yeah. mainstream sort in, of white culture. In the 1950s, he had uh, really far more records sold than... Um, uh, than most of the people we now consider icons of, you know, early rock and roll, like, you know, Chuck Berry, Little Richard, etc. He was, uh, reportedly the first person to ever sell a million copies of a particular song. Um, and of course, this, this is before the days of, you know, Mixcloud or Bandcamp or anything like that. It was before the days of the internet. It was before the days of, um, of FM radio. Um, is, uh, you know, primarily, uh, AM radio was dominated by music stations and those music stations, uh, were very rarely rock and roll. There was maybe only one or two per city. Um, everything else was, uh, called middle of the road and that's where, uh, Belafonte broke through to. So, um, he was a huge, um, uh, star 
in uh, both music and in, in concerts and um, yeah, later, more, later in, in movies. I think more importantly, culturally, his music stands up to the test of time, too. There are people who still love to listen to his to his songs, and I would recommend that you go back and listen to him just in tribute, especially if you've never heard any of his music before. Yeah, he uh, he considered himself a folk a folk singer, uh, mm-hmm. and what he meant by that was that he uh, pulled traditions from Caribbean music, particularly uh, calypso music, is what he's best known for, which is Trinidad, uh, all the way in the, the south end of the West Indies. Um, but you know, he was a big star, and then he managed to leverage that star in becoming a really important civil rights activist, first for the struggle for, for civil rights uh, for African-Americans in the United States, and uh, later globally as well. He was a close confidant of MLK. Uh, in fact, his apartment was where MLK stayed whenever he went to New York City. Uh, and, and he had a huge, huge uh, impact with his activism and reached a lot of people because he was such a uh, cultural icon. And particularly known for for leveraging the money that he made from the sales of his records to help to helping the cause. So he was known as a big funder for for various causes and for various uh, folks who were who were working hard and able to devote the their full time uh, time to to civil rights issues because he was helping to foot the bill. Yeah, and he bailed a lot of people out of jail mm-hmm. in, in the South during the 1960s. <laughs> so he uh, he he was a, a, a huge activist as well as uh, as well as a uh, cultural icon, and he will be missed. Mm-hmm. All right, <clears throat> let's move on. Starting out with uh, local and city council news. Yeah, uh, this week the full city council approved their two appointments to the board of the new Seattle social housing developer. Those two folks are Julie Howe, who is a graduate of UC Boulder's urban planning department, and she has a certificate in commercial real estate from the UW. Uh, she's wor- currently working on her PhD with an interest in affordable housing, co-op housing, and co-housing. She's served on the Black Home Ownership Initiative Work Group of the Seattle King County Housing Development Consortium, and she's also served on the uh, City of Seattle's Affordable Middle Income Housing Advisory Council. And then the other appointee is Alexander Liu, is a senior transportation planner at Sound Transit. He's worked on and has an interest in BIPOC neighborhood street safety issues, uh, sustainable development, and how public infrastructure affects the health of communities, uh, particularly communities of color. He's served on the Seattle Bicycle Advisory Board and Seattle Neighborhood Greenways. And then the other 11 members have also all been appointed. Uh, El Centro de la Raza appointed Brian Ramirez, who works in El Centro's affordable housing, child care, and residential management. Uh, Michael Eliason was appointed by the Green New Deal Oversight Board. He's the founder of Larch Lab, which works on decarbonizing buildings, innovative architecture, and adapting urban areas to climate change. Uh, the MLK County Labor Council appointed Tori Nakamatsu Figueroa. She's a, uh, she's a union activist, of course, with uh, UFCW 3000, and she is an advocate for affordable housing. Uh, Mayor Bruce Harrell appointed Chuck DePew, 
He works at the National Development Council, providing consulting to governments on housing finance and development issues, although not necessarily affordable housing. (laughs) And then there were seven members appointed by the Seattle Renters Commission, and I'm just going to briefly list their affiliations. Ebo Barton uh, is affiliated with the Lavender Rights Project. Uh, Kylia Baldwin, affiliated with the Puget Sound Sage and Sage Leaders. Devin Forschmite uh, is an early childhood educate, educator in the Head Start program, and uh, they canvassed for I-135, which was, which was the initiative that uh, approved the housing developer. Thomas Barnard is retired with a background in nonprofit work and as an aide in the Washington State Legislature and policy analyst for the Port of Seattle Commission. Don Daly uh, is a 43rd District Democrats fundraiser chair and meeting and events chair and was a fundraiser for I-135. Katie Labrette uh, has lived experience of homelessness and is Native American and a member of the trans community. And Kay Ellen Zimmerman, uh, also has lived experience of homelessness and has volunteered for many years with Lehigh, with Bellwether Housing, Community Roots, and the Seattle Housing Authority. And she also identifies as trans. Yeah. Uh, the Social Housing Developer Board should be holding its first meeting sometime in May, uh, probably late May. I think May 30th is the deadline for when they have to hold their first meeting. Then the City Council will discuss and and fund the first 18 months of salary and benefits for the CEO and CFO of the new social housing developer. And they may decide to provide other supports for, for the, or for the public development authority too. And then also this week in the city council, or I should say the week before this past week, Andrew Lewis's public assets and homelessness committee heard a presentation on the third Avenue project, which is a partnership of human service uh, organizations and the Downtown Seattle Association to try and address crime, homelessness, graffiti, drug use, and drug dealing on Third Ave- in the Third Avenue corridor between Stewart Street and University Street on the South End. Uh, these are often perceived as the worst or ugliest blocks in Downtown Seattle. Now, as part of that project, groups like the Downtown Emergency Services Center, Reach, Co-Lead the King County Regional Homelessness Authority and the city of Seattle's hope team uh, have been working with the mayor's office and the downtown Seattle association to provide the services uh, and, and help to get uh, folks off the street. Part of that process is also identifying who's hanging out on third Avenue and why they're there, uh, including developing a by name list of the homeless in that, in that corridor. Now, the demographics they've collected so far show that the majority of the folks that hang out along Third Avenue are homeless. About 90 percent of them are. And they have serious mental health and substance abuse issues that can't be addressed while they remain homeless. Uh, Many, many of the folks with substance abuse issues also engage in subsistence level drug sales for basic income to afford food and uh, the drug purchases that they need to sustain their own habits. Notably, heroin is not the main drug. Fentanyl is. And unlike heroin, fentanyl requires a new hit every half hour or so. If you're not familiar with how addictive fentanyl is. Now, there is some evidence of high level drug dealing and trafficking, but that's not the biggest component. 
while the Seattle Police Department can address the high level trafficking and they have been working on that with their emphasis patrols, it's really the service providers who have to address the uh, homelessness and health issues of the 90 percent majority of the folks who hang out in the Third Avenue corridor. And right now they're saying that the, that there's not enough open beds for the uh, housing plus treatment that's really needed for these folks. So that's the the biggest issue that and the biggest takeaway from that presentation by the Third Avenue Project. Now, also on April 19th, the Select Committee on the 2023 Housing Levy heard a presentation on the mayor's proposed levy to replace the old 2016 housing levy that's ending this year. The new levy would institute a 45 cent per 1,000 assessed property uh, value tax over seven years to collect about $970 million total, which uh, they are estimating would create a minimum of 3,158 affordable housing units. <clears throat> That's about double the tax rate of the old levy. The money would be spent as follows. $707 million would go for rental production and preservation. 60% of those units would be for the lowest income tier, which is below 30% of area median income. $122 million would go for operating maintenance and services, including funds for wage increases for folks working on affordable housing and housing services, which is usually called, quote-unquote, workforce stabilization. Okay. Uh, $51 million would go for home ownership programs for folks making up to 80% of area median income. $30 million would go for homelessness prevention, including rental assistance, eviction prevention, and stability, housing stability services. $60 million would go to administer the program, and that's about 6% of the levy funds. An additional $30 million could be leveraged for housing acquisition through short-term loans that the, uh, that, that could be leveraged by the funds collected from the levy. And there are significant areas of the city that are quickly losing affordable housing, according to the folks who, who are, who are proposing this new levy. And those areas of the city are First Hill, Beacon Hill, Rainier Valley, South Park, Northgate, and the University District. Those are really the regions that the city is working really hard to try to preserve affordable housing. And they're hoping that this, that this housing levy can work alongside the over $600 million in jumpstart payroll tax funds that the city is currently using to try to keep those areas affordable and to combat, combat gentrification and displacement in those parts of the city where folks uh, have been have been uh, pushed out of their homes in order to to build new and uh, less affordable uh, apartments, which is pretty much most of the city at this point. Yeah. All the other neighborhoods of the city pretty much have have, you know, mission accomplished in terms of in terms of uh, gentrification. But these few areas still have some affordable units and they have some land that could be uh, could be built with higher density. But right now, the city kind of needs to jump in there and say, hey, can at least a portion of those units be affordable housing? Yeah, since the previous measures that rely on, you know, the the voluntary um, 
compliance of developers don't seem to have worked over the last 20 years. Yeah, don't, don't provide enough affordable housing to really prevent uh, displacing folks from from the city of Seattle and really disrupting the culture of, of a lot of neighborhoods. So, And I remember making that case that it wasn't nearly enough to meet the need like 10 years ago. I, I mean, know. I remember. I mean, it's 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 not like this has been any mystery for a long, long time. Mystery solved. (laughs) All right. Uh, Let's move on to Olympia. Yeah. So uh, there's been a lot of coverage of the gun related bills that passed the legislature, including House Bill 1240, which bans the importation and sale of assault rifles in Washington state. And it makes Washington the ninth state to pass this kind of a ban behind uh, California, Connecticut, Delaware, Illinois, Massachusetts, Maryland, New Jersey and New York. But some of the notable housing-related bills that passed the legislature this year include uh, House Bill 1110, which requires most cities in Washington to allow at least two units on all residential lots and four units on lots near public transit or with at least one unit of affordable housing. That's in cities with more than 25,000 people. In cities with more than 75,000, the minimum is four units per lot and six units near public transit or with at least two units of affordable housing included. It doesn't prohibit cities from having higher limits than that. It's really meant to be a baseline minimum. Current, For example, currently here in Seattle, the minimum in residential neighborhoods is three units per lot. So this would up that to four units and six units near public transit. Now, also, the House Bill 1337 allows a house plus two accessory dwelling units per lot in all areas of the state, including unincorporated areas. So while House Bill 1110 applies to cities over 25,000 people, this bill, HB 1337, fills in the gaps for all other areas of the state, essentially. So a house plus two accessory dwelling units everywhere in the state of Washington. Senate Bill 5045 allows counties with more than 1.5 million in population, that's essentially just King County, to exempt accessory dwelling units from property taxes if those units are rented to low-income households making 60% or less of area median income and the rent doesn't exceed 30% of the tenant's income. House Bill 1250 expands the affordable housing units that would qualify for grants under the Low Income Housing Rehabilitation Grant Program. It formally applied to tenants who make 60% of area median income. This bill increases that threshold to 80% area median income based on the county where the resident lives. It retires the old loan program and it forgives any outstanding loans in the old loan rehabilitation program. So that's very good news because often units are created as affordable housing, but then as as the as they begin to need repairs, it becomes really easy for for those landlords to just sell the property to a new to a developer who then tears down the affordable housing and puts in new market rate housing. This is meant to address that issue by providing grants for rehabbing affordable housing. House Bill 1042 would prevent cities and local governments from imposing restrictions on the construction of new housing units within already existing buildings in areas that are zoned for commercial or mixed use. That includes things like requiring a certain number of parking spaces per resident, 
requiring a minimum square footage for each unit in order to prevent single renters from living in a neighborhood and exterior design requirements to the building that aren't health and safety related. So um, that's meant to help uh, commercial landlords uh, flip their properties over into residential uh, uh, properties if if they're if they're of a mind to do that. And it's meant to save them a little bit of money and prevent neighborhood groups from from requiring onerous design changes that then increase the cost of the project and, and force the developer to walk away. Yeah, for instance, commercial buildings that are built all the way to the property line in each direction. Yeah, and then the neighborhood group comes in and says, well, you got to do a setback, which requires at least a partial teardown of the entire building. This is meant to prevent that. House Bill 1046 would allow, uh, does allow public housing authorities to finance affordable housing that would serve people making up to 80% of area median income instead of just 50% of area median income. This is meant to do two things. It's to fill in some of the missing middle housing and it's to help stabilize the finances of public housing authorities. If they can collect a little more in rent from at least some of their tenants, uh, they can more easily expand and build more housing as well as afford uh, to rehab existing structures. And then uh, House Bill 1326 allows municipal utility companies to waive the connection fees for affordable housing or transitional housing, permanent supportive housing, or emergency shelter projects built by nonprofits, public development authorities, housing authorities, and local agencies. So another way to save developers some money when they want to uh, develop, uh, particularly nonprofit developers, when they want to put up affordable housing. And then there were three, I just want to point out, three notable voter enhancement. You could call these maybe democracy enhancement bills. ESSB 5082 repeals the Tim Iman initiative that requires all tax increases by the state to be subject to advisory votes. So oh, we will, thank goodness. Yes, we will not see any more of those. It also sets up. I, a, I would love to see an estimate of how much that has cost taxpayers over the last 15 yeah. years. Because, of course, Tim Iman is all about saving taxpayers' money. Right? right, right. Now, this bill also sets up an informational website where Washington residents can see state budgets, expenditures, and other important financial information. And future voters' pamphlets will contain the URL of that website once it's set up. And then ESSB 5152 requires a public disclosure when any audio or visual recording is altered in a political campaign or ad and allows any candidate to sue if they appear in an altered recording, otherwise known as synthetic media, that hasn't been disclosed as such. They can sue for both damages and legal fees. And then uh, E2SSB 5112 automatically registers a person to vote in Washington state if they get a driver's license or enhanced identity card. It also automatically updates a person's voter registration when they renew their driver's license or ID card. So those three bills I thought were really notable uh, and really great voter enhancement. And you, as, as I said before, you could call those democracy enhancement bills. So that's my wrap up of, of housing related bills and then three, what I thought were three really important voter bills. Yeah. And I do want to talk about one other gun safety measure that hasn't gotten a lot of attention, which is the, uh, that, uh, in, signed into law this week, 
a measure that allows Washington residents to sue gun manufacturers or gun dealers for damages uh, resulting from the, you know, planned, uh, the, the uh, I, I guess, the, the product safety um, uh, aspects of, you know, guns that are used to kill people. Uh, now, this is something that Congress had long uh, barred uh, shielded gun manufacturers and dealers from this kind of liability. Uh, the courts have overturned that now, and so four other states have passed this kind of measure before. Washington becomes the fifth, and uh, one would hope that, um, the, you know, the threat of uh, financial ruin would be enough to at least curtail some of the marketing uh campaigns that gun manufacturers use to put, you know, 15 guns in every home of a gun owner, that kind of thing. Good news. And Washington Notify is uh, ending in May. Yes, for people who have a long, long memory, all the way back to the beginning of the pandemic three years ago, uh, Washington set up a program called Washington Notify. And the idea of this was that developing a website is a lot easier than doing actual contact tracing, which is very, you know, labor intensive. Uh, Washington Notify was a, an automated site at which you could sign up. And then if somebody was reported to have COVID-19, it could use the uh, location data from your phone in order to tell you whether you've been within, you know, close proximity of the person who came down with the, uh, the bug. Well, that, that app has been plugging along all these years, um, even though it's become less and less reliable just because people haven't been reporting their, co- you know, the, the status of COVID having or not having COVID-19 to the state. And the state health department has also, uh, you know, really slacked off on its reporting requirements from localities. Um, so as of May 11th, Washington Notify will no longer exist. Uh, it's probably overdue given that, you know, we learned a year ago that the pandemic was supposedly over. Um, you know, spoiler alert, it's not over. Uh, it continues to infect and kill people, uh, particularly seniors and particularly people with impressed, uh, uh, suppressed and compromised immune systems. But, um, you know, those folks are on their own right now because the pandemic is officially over. Just a couple minutes left. Um, let's talk about Montana and Zoe Zephyr. Yeah, Zoe Zephyr is um, a, uh, a Democratic representative from the city of Missoula, which is kind of a blue island in a red state, Montana. Uh, it's a university town and sort of a counterculture hub. Um, so uh, she's transgender. She was the first uh, transgender person that we know of anyway to be elected to Montana state legislature last year. And uh, she has made national headlines over the past month because she has now been barred from the House floor or from speaking uh, on, on any kind of committees or any kind of uh, legislative matters. Uh, she can still vote remotely, but she cannot be on the floor of the House. And the re- her transgression for this is she told uh, Montana legislators on the floor that they would have blood on their hands if they passed a bill, which they did. It's a Republican supermajority in both the House and Senate in Montana. They passed a bill that uh, barred, uh, uh, you know, gender-affirming care for uh, minors. Now, this is kind of interesting because, you know, the rationale Republicans use for this is 
uh, you know, that, that uh, parents shouldn't be allowed to do uh, what they think is right for their child. Um, because, you know, some version of, of conservatism finds this offensive. But the, the, the Republican rationale for, uh, you know, for, for instance, the don't say gay bill in Florida is, is all about parental choice, that we want parents to be able to choose whether to protect their children from these kind of images. So which is it? Do we want to, uh, champion parents' rights or do we want to take rights away from parents? It depends which one, the, the through line on this, of course, is that it denies rights to LGBTQ uh, community members. And um, that seems to be the real motivation here and doesn't have anything to do with parents' rights or parents' lack of rights. So, uh, yeah, this is the latest uh, uh, victim of a tactic that's become increasingly popular in Republican circles of simply silencing uh, Democratic lawmakers in, in states with Republican supermajorities. I think we can expect a lot more of this kind of thing as it becomes more popular in red states with Republican supermajorities in the legislature. Yeah, and part of their their new campaign to target, uh, since they lost so badly on gay marriage, to target uh, trans people in particular. But, you know, when you hear them say, you know, we don't want... Uh, trans people to have uh, uh, health care is if they're under 18 or we don't want uh, kids exposed to drag queen story hour or, you know, any kind of, of trans affirming cultural issues. It's not about uh, parents' rights. It's not about uh, anything other than homophobia and transphobia. Absolutely. Period. End of, period, end of story. All right.